Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and Foraged Market and eFish. Today, I have a really fun episode. This is a episode about a style of preservation that I don't know a whole lot about, and it is cheese making. And not only is it cheese making, it is basic cheese making in a way that you can actually do at home. This is not fancy, fancy cheeses that take years to make. These are cheeses that you can actually literally make if you choose to make them in your own kitchen with just a tiny little bit of equipment. My guest today is Claudia Lucero, and Claudia Lucero runs Urban Cheese Craft in Portland, Oregon, and she is an expert at helping you make your first cheeses. So she is super fun. She is very, very knowledgeable, and this is going to be an absolutely fun podcast. Claudia Lucero, thank you for coming on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am very happy to have someone who knows more than a little about cheese on the show. Thank you, Hank. I'm so excited to be here. So tell people out there uh, who you are and what do you do and and what is your what is your intimate connection with cheese? Yes. So I started a small business called Urban Cheesecraft here uh, in Portland, Oregon in 2009. That was after I basically taught myself how to make cheese for the previous two years, moving here from sunny San Diego, California in December, not knowing anyone. Um, I decided that that would be the perfect incubator for learning new things in the kitchen. So I knew with the move up here that I wanted to get more connected to my food. Um, and I tried all sorts of things, but the thing that really stuck as uh, a business was urban cheese craft. So, you know, stretching that first mozzarella, I was so amazed with myself and with how easy the process was that I thought I have to teach everyone. And so I started a little Etsy shop and the, the beginning of it was three small kits of all cheeses that I had mastered and kind of converted to an average apartment kitchen, which is what I lived in at the time. One gallon, anyone can do it, store-bought milk, et cetera. And then that kind of started a cascade of uh, this whole cheese making and teaching adventure that I've gone on, which has included writing now four books and I teach a lot of classes um, and just kind of getting beginners started. That's sort of where my specialization stayed. Which makes you absolutely perfect for today. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, I I do have one nit to pick with you. Uh, yeah. Your latest book really ought to be titled "No Way." Way. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> do you know how many fun pun titles we came up with? And then when the publisher was like, "Let's just go straightforward," I was like, "All right." <laughs> I mean, you are talking to a guy who wrote a book called "Buck Buck Moose." And, and pheasant quail cottontail. Yeah, yeah. If I start publishing my own, I think the titles are going to get super wacky too. Well, Duck Duck Goose was done by Random House, so I have some. Well, precedent. yeah, yeah. No, you you obviously have more pull than I do with the publishers. They just have been like, nope, we're going with this. You should totally do maybe a like a special something some something that is completely fun because it's just so many puns involving way. Oh, and you know how hard it was to stay away from them throughout the entire book. And even I just recently, because this is my newest one, Cooking with Way, I did a little book lunch event here in Portland. And it was just anytime anyone said the word way, just W-A-W or, or yeah, W-A-Y, there was just giggles and snickers all over right? <laughs> the entire time. 
It would be worse if you were in San Diego again, because that's no way. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Este way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No mommy's way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you know I'm Mexican. Oh, and you knew that I grew up in San Diego. So, yeah, I'm right there. With no, you. I didn't know that you were Mexican, but I knew yeah. you, that you grew up in San Diego, which is like greater Tijuana. Yes, exactly. And that's where all my family came from. And I just barely was born in the in San Diego, having been crossed over in the womb. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. We, I, I do want to talk about Mexican cheeses because a great many of them are not that hard to make. Exactly. And that was that's sort of my inspiration and why I've stayed also, I think, with these um, fresh cheeses is that's what my palate enjoys. And it, sometimes it's difficult because because a lot of uh, people in the U.S. just kind of want that sharp, melty cheddar because that's what they grew up with, you know. Oh, you mean um, for like Mexican food or, or for just to yeah, eat cheese? for uh, to eat cheese and um, for making as well. Kind gotcha. of people's paradigms of what making cheese is, you know. Uh, and well, so I'm constantly singing the praises of all these fresh cheeses. <laughs> I kind of want, like, God, that's interesting. Let me start with my own thought process here. Like, well, okay. what is cheese to me? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. when I grew when I grew up, like if I have like sort of young Hank thoughts of cheese, it's gonna it's gonna be definitely Vermont white cheddar. Because uh-huh. in my yeah. family, uh, the white cheddar was always considered superior to the yellow one. Because even mm-hmm. as a child, I knew that the yellow one was colored. Oh, um, see, adults ask me that in classes today. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 actually cheating because the really the best cheddar cheese in England isn't colored and it's yellow. It's because right. it's made with with the milk from cows that have been eating a lot of grass and it's only That's made at a right. certain time of year. So That's right. Just like that bright blue or <laughs> what? Bright uh, uh, yellow butter because of the grass-fed cows, right? You can really tell the difference in the quality of milk when you make butter and put it against each other. Yeah, definitely. I guess so that the Vermont cheddar rings very true. Um, Are you from Vermont? I'm from Jersey. Ah, okay. But that's just where the cheddar came from. Yeah. So the Adirondacks, New York makes the same cheddar and it's also very good. Uh, Um, I think the other one, like the the cheese of my heartland, though, is provolone. Mm, Okay. Because I grew up in an Italian neighborhood and... You know, the cheese you got on your sandwich was provolone. Ah, that was the default. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's a great yeah. cheese for a sandwich. And like a bacon, egg, and cheese or a Taylor ham, egg, and cheese, you always have your options. Of, you could get American, but like only weird people got American where I lived. Yeah. Um, and, but most people will get provolone, Swiss, or um, I can't remember what the other one was, but it's just, yeah, it, that's, it, it's on a sandwich. Um, the really, you know, strong aged cheddar, like really old cheddar we would get for mm-hmm. Christmas because it was expensive. Oh, nice. Um, you know, like multiple year old cheddar. Yeah. And oh, yeah, my mom really likes Gorgonzola. Mm-hmm. And that's about it. That's yeah. those, those so my, you were raised with some, yeah. kind, some strong flavors. Not a lot of people were. Yeah, here. I don't think I anyway. ate feta. <laughs> I don't think I ate feta until uh-huh. I was in college. You know, yeah. I, I didn't taste it until high school because I had a, a Persian uh, good friend. I went over to her house and after school we would make, you know, they had tortillas around cause it's still San Diego, even though it's mm. a Persian family, you know, everybody has tortillas in the, in the house. We call them and, lavash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, they could also have lavash. That's true. I wasn't introduced to that there, <laughs> but when we blended, you know, my idea of an after school snack was just like a simple taco made with whatever 
was around with her feta and probably avocados and whatever little green. It was just like a revelation. It was just like feta is basically like all the Mexican cheeses I've grown up with, but with so much more salt and depth of flavor. It was a total um, just like life changing moment for me. So, okay, since we're talking about it, tell me the difference between feta and cotija. Um, cotija, from what I understand, is not, I haven't made it. It is not um, salt water brined in the same way that uh, feta is. Feta, and there are a couple ways to make feta, and I can talk about the beginner's way that I teach people how to make feta is kind of the entry into making aged cheeses. That's kind of, that really actually is a very good first step. Uh, because anybody can do it without a special, any kind of special equipment. Um, there are a couple ways. The way that I teach beginners is really just to, uh, let's see, have you made any cheese, Hank? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I've, I've made queso fresco and I've okay, made, great. Uh, I've actually made Perfect. ricotta salada too. Okay. You know, ricotta salada, I think is more t- toward the cotija end, whereas queso fresco is a very similar way that I teach people how to make um, feta. So I'm curious to see if this is the way that you made it. And if you made queso fresco, by the way, you're just one step away from mozzarella and provolone and all those things. Um, but you make your curd, you hang it in, you know, your, uh, cloth, it becomes this curd ball and you slice it, um, into slabs and then you spread it out on like, say a large, you know, um, lasagna dish type of thing Mm -hmm. in these slabs that are about one inch thick and kind of ball shaped in the other direction. And you just sprinkle them with flaky salt, often called cheese salt because it doesn't contain iodine and it's very, very light and flaky, which makes it really easy to absorb into uh, wet curd. You, you do that. And essentially it's salt curing. The salt is going through the curd and you know, preserving it because some of that time is done out at room temperature and then some of that time is in the fridge. This whole process takes about seven days. Um, feta um, in the other way, the more traditional way is done in a salt water brine and uh, also can be in slabs, but huge chunks. And so it's very wet. The entire process is pretty wet. Um, but you can, get, with, with beginners, I don't like to teach that one because you can get into problems if they didn't sanitize properly, if they are using raw milk and maybe don't know the source that well, it's, it gives a lot of opportunity for pathogens to grow. Mm-hmm. So I stick to the dry. Um, and queso fresco, as you were asking, you know how I cut the slabs of feta, yeah. um, which essentially is the same process as um, up to the cutting as queso fresco. You just would salt the outside and allow the whole wheel to absorb Uh, the salt after you'd rubbed it with it. So some people frown upon the easy way of making feta and just saying like, well, that's just queso fresco. Yeah, it kind of is, but it also develops the flavor. It makes it easy and accessible for people and it's ready in a week versus three months. (laughs) I'll be damned. Well, Uh so we just jumped right into the deep end. So let's cut, let's step back for a second. All right. Um, Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny because I think whenever and I see myself already doing it, even in introducing my business. Whenever you ask any sort of question, it's really difficult to not go into a process. So that will be your challenge. <laughs> There's a funny meme that's been going around uh, around where it's a guy or it's a person uh, really overfilling a coffee cup. And the it's listed like, what happens when anybody asks me anything about something I know? Yeah. 
I'm like, where do I start? Hank? I want to talk about tacos. I want to talk about ruminant stomachs. <laughs> Let's start with the, the most basic one there is. Okay. Why, why should someone go to the time, money and expense to make cheese at home? Like what's, yeah. what's, what, because there, you can easily answer this question with a lot of home preservation things. Cheese, I have found, I have found that I can buy queso fresco at the mm -hmm. same price, if not, if not cheaper, then I can make it. And this yep. is true with a lot of these homemade cheeses that they're not necessarily, you're not necessarily saving money if you're kind of a normal person. Now, obviously, the people who make cheese have you know, access to just chingos de dairy. And, <laughs> and, and like, you know, you're living it, you know, oh my God, I got so much milk. Obviously, you're going to make cheese. But, but yes. most people listening to this aren't dairymen. So yep. why do it? Yeah. A couple of reasons. Um, knowing where you get the milk is important. But then, of course, that benefit goes away if you can't access anything but just grocery store milk, right? Um, but honestly, it is really for the craft and for just seeing an amazing transformation that's so accessible to all of us. And doesn't take months before you get to see the results, you know, like you might get like, honestly, I haven't jumped into making salami or um, a lot of charcuterie because it, it like aged cheeses like a cheddar, it, it takes months and I'm assuming sometimes years to see the result. Um, and some people are into a long term craft like that. Um, and I'm sure that there's charcuterie that you can make that's faster, but um, with cheese, there are so many levels, like you said, making ricotta, it can take as little as 20 minutes. And yet I find that people come to my classes and are just, you truly see awe in their faces. And so I think there's really just something magical about people seeing the reality that this thing that true is not very expensive and I can go grab and maybe my family's been using, you know, since I was a kid to make my favorite dish or whatever, I can really make it in under an hour and a few minutes. And just seeing that um, the, the science of the very simple separation of the solids and the liquid seems to really stay with people. It's like a, in a small way, just a, an empowerment thing. And just kind of a, I don't know, looking behind the curtain, sort of like a cheese isn't just something that factories can make. It really is like a power Jack. to the people thing. It's magic. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah. And the really cool thing I like to tell people is it kind of connects us to so many gen generations before us and also just even villages doing this right now on an open fire or in a little hut or something. It just feels like a very human thing. It's it's I, I agree with the magic part completely because cheese is kind of magic in and of itself when you even mm -hmm. when you buy it. I mean, there's yeah. all, there's all different kinds and we'll get into some of the different types of animals that you get the milk from. And and those are all different. And the, the everything from like horror shows like Kazumarzu to, you know, that Vermont cheddar that we talked about to, to queso fresco. They're all mm -hmm. cheese and they're all just it's how you preserve milk. And it's something we've been doing for at least 10,000 years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I want to add to not just the magic of watching the process and, and feeling connection to 
you know, something people did generations ago more regularly, and we don't do so much now. But really, when you make your first ricotta as simple as that cheese is, and then if you make your first mozzarella, there is really just nothing better than that first bite of a cheese that's never been refrigerated, and you can even eat while it's warm. Uh, maybe it's not the most, you know, uh, complex artisanal cheese, but it really tastes incredible. And that really, I think, is what converted me tasting mozzarella. I mean, it's very easy when you make up a, a one gallon batch of <laughs> like mozzarella that yields about a pound and a half to eat that all in one day between, between you and another person because it's so incredible. <laughs> so I can't say enough about the flavor and the experience, but also, um, you know, if you do have a good source of milk, like one that I have is just 20 minutes away in kind of a little country area outside of Portland, friends who own a small dairy farm, I know that they just have two cows and one goat and I can get my milk from them um, and enjoy raw milk that makes it incredibly easy to make cheese. So one of the aged cheeses I do make um, because it's quick and I love it is a brie, a little camembert style. Mm. Um, and it's just making it with that milk versus grocery store milk. There's just no difference. And that's also what I make my yogurt with, which then I make my Greek yogurt and labna with. Um, and so if you can access good milk and you can buy it at grocery stores and you can um, buy it in little co-ops, it depends what state you live in. Exactly. I was just going to say, if yeah. you're interested in this sort of stuff out there, um, chances are your local health food store will have either raw milk or not terribly, horribly pasteurized milk. Exactly. Yeah. You, you can see on the, and, and you know, a tip off, although I'm sure they can start fooling us with that too, but it costs a lot of money to bottle in, in glass, but a tip off sometimes is the glass bottle, which you have to pay a deposit for and you get it back and you exchange it. Um, but if you're going to do it regularly, that's a good way to do it. And it'll say batch pasteurize or vat pasteurize. Mm. Also another tip for good milk or better milk anyway, that's not going to be ultra pasteurized at a higher heat, which makes it pretty impossible to make good cheese. Um, is to look on the label and often it will have the address or the source of the milk. And if it's local, more than likely, likely it means it wasn't ultra pasteurized because they're not um, wanting the longer shelf life for traveling across the country and things like that. Strauss is like that here in Northern California. Yes, that's a good one. When I go to San Diego, I find that one. Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them. On my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, that is at huntgathercook.com, you will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop. You use the code HUNTGATHERTALK, that's HUNTGATHERTALK in all one word, and you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing on the huntgathercook.com shop. You will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code huntgathertalk and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. I, I want to add on to the ricotta comment because mm. that's the cheese that I make the most mm. because if you are if you grew up cooking with a t with ricotta and eating ricotta 
And if you grew up like I did in New Jersey, where you could go to the pork store, which is what they call an Italian deli, um, ah. you go to the pork store and there's ricotta there. Like there's ricotta there that somebody made. And yeah. Ooh. It's in the refrigerator section and it's like served before Friday and and it's always, always, always made with whole milk and mm-hmm. it's a million times better than any yeah. ricotta you can buy in the store Yeah, because ricotta doesn't keep well. And ricotta is exactly it, look at the labels of the ricotta you're buying. It's 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 ricotta cheese plus a whole lot of stuff to keep it from going bad. And it really, really really makes a difference if you're cooking something that it's ricotta based like gnocchi mm-hmm. or um or uh, lasagna or mm-hmm. or cannoli uh, a, cannolis a ricotta mm-hmm. cake mm-hmm. Uh, like an italian cheesecake a lot of italian cheesecakes are made with ricotta yeah. and it's just like it's the difference between like your cigarette lighter and the sun <laughs> it's a pretty big difference yeah <laughs> but that's an excellent point oh geez and then it left my mind um, your train of thought derailed yes totally I was so into what you were saying anyway I lost it but I'll, oh no 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 that's what it is is that because you, especially if you're going to large grocery stores if that's what's convenience near you you're going to be buying food and cheese in this case that is meant to have a long shelf life just like the milk and so you miss out on so many of these traditional recipes that cultures around the world you know invented and still eat if they have you know small markets like what you mentioned with the um ricotta, but we miss out on them because of that short shelf life. Stores don't want to carry that, especially if the cheeses are lesser known, target just a particular culture. Um, And so here we have a large Russian population. You can go to small um, Russian markets and find some cheeses there that will not be sold in like, you know, the Kroger or Fred Meyer um, type of store here. So that's another great benefit is if you're looking to make something that you grew up with, haven't had in years because you moved from Germany, from Mexico, wherever, you can make probably your own fresh cheeses um, just like that at home. So I want to get into that as the next step. But before, like in our head, we're making ricotta Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah. So we've just made an amazing batch of ricotta. Or as they say back where I grew up, ricotta. Um, (laughs) And and so now you're left with way <laughs> no way <laughs> yes way so yes left with a whole bunch of way and actually to be honest the real traditional method of making ricotta is, mm-hmm. is when you have just ass loads of whey that you then uh yes make, make ricotta from but but let's get to that in a second but okay what i typically will do when i have a lot of whey is i then switch gears and go to scandinavia because mm-hmm. using whey as a uh, a stock for soup, like a yeah. chowder, mm-hmm. is I have a, a I have a soup that relies on whey as the it's a fish soup that relies mm-hmm. on whey as the acidity component in the in in the soup, and it it is mm-hmm. absolutely knock your socks off. Oh, yeah. that's how I use whey. I'm gonna guess that you have. 101 ways to use whey because you just read a book about it. <laughs> yeah, 150, actually. I was only able to fit uh, just about 60 into the book, but I did a recipe test, uh, a lot more of them. And soup is an excellent one because here you, I mean, it just kind of, you know, you make the ricotta, you have a stock pot full of whey left after it kind of begging to become a soup. And just anything that you would want, that creamy mouthfeel, 
will work as a soup, even if it's not a cheese-based soup or cream-based soup. Um, just think of it as a really luxurious, creamy broth. Uh, so it is that, a really good base for caldo de queso. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Uh, I don't know if caldo de queso is exactly like what I grew up with, um, having caldo de papa, but it has queso in it. <laughs> is yours like a... So a Sonoran caldo de queso is... Um, the the cheese element normally uh, is like panela or it's a cheese that, that holds its shape pretty well. Mm. So it's it will still melt, uh. but... It's really cool because it's it, it has potatoes and tomatoes and green chilies, uh-huh. uh, and those are all roasted and done. And then you have yeah. a broth, usually yeah. chicken broth, but but whey is actually really good as a um, as a as an addition, not necessarily mm-hmm. as a replacement. Mm-hmm. And then you have the cubes of cheese in your bowl, and you pour the broth every you pour everything over it, so mm-hmm. the cheese is starting to kind of melt as you mm-hmm. eat it, mm-hmm. and it's the rich and and oh, it, it, it takes the place of meat in the uh, in mm-hmm. the soup. Yeah, sounds like a very similar soup, but because of what we had accessible in San Diego when we weren't over in Tijuana, my grandmother just would use Monterey Jack, which I'm sure you've seen (laughs) used a lot in some Mexican food. Yeah, but she'd shred it, interestingly. So then it would melt. And in addition, she would stir in egg white. So it looked Ah. like the soup had a ton of cheese in it. As a kid, I thought it was just a whole bowl of cheese soup, but it was egg white as well. So another way to... uh, pump up the protein kind of seen as like a poor people dish you know what you make when you don't have a lot uh, but oh my gosh it's one of my favorites to this day so give yeah me, great give me, give me a couple two other uses for whey a uh, very simple kind of another no-brainer like soup is strain it really well and then keep it in your fridge as if it were going to be milk or um, even if people have almond milk to make smoothies, to make um, oatmeal, to cook rice. And just imagine that creamy, very low fat milk flavor working in all of those different things. It's a just, you know, have it in your fridge as if you were going to just have milk in there and, um, do all those, but one kind of fun one that is sort of a smoothie like is I don't know if you ever saw uh, Orange Julius in the malls in California <laughs> or oh, I don't yeah. know if in Jersey. Okay, well, freeze a bunch of orange segments right now. It's citrus season, especially in California, which is awesome. I just visited family in San Diego in December and it was just like painful to see just trees dripping with citrus and then to come back to Portland. We have 48 lemons on our tree right now. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. (laughs) Um, Oh, there's a lot of lemon uses too, but orange Julius, you know, I found out was invented as a way to uh, make orange juice less acidic on the stomach, kind of like a, you know, started as a medical trick type of thing. So put uh, frozen orange segments into your blender, put some whey in there, a little dab of honey, if you like, blend that up. And then it makes an orange Julius that's just actually good. And, you know, you know what the food is. It's not high fructose corn syrup or whatever they put in the mall version. That's I was a fun today one. years old. I was today years old when I learned what an or- orange Julius is. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. It's funny, <laughs> but way too sweet. But it's that kind of creamsicle result. Oh, yeah. yeah. So um, it's crucial to, you know, peel the oranges, segment them so that you can take out all the seeds and then freeze them because that's going to give it sort of that slushy flavor. But with some whey, it's super refreshing. But with the book, I got to experiment with a lot of things that were nostalgic and then kind of, you know, reinvent them with whey, but also traditional things from around the world that would normally use milk or normally use broth. 
So, um, you know, like pau de queijo, which you probably know is a Brazilian cheese bread. That's mm -hmm. tapioca See, based. The way I know that that was Portuguese was that it sounds like drunk Spanish. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. There's so many jas in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. My name was said Claudia. It's just like somebody sort of drifted off into a nap at the end of my name. <laughs> Thinking wild, Gilberto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how would yeah. you make how would you make ricotta from the whey? So I, yes. I get the sense that you need just a, just a megaton of whey to make ricotta. Yes, your technical term I think was ass loads, right? <laughs> yes, so you do. You do need ass loads of it, which is why it's not really done much in the home cheese making world. Yeah, so it would be you know the Italian mozzarella maker then has a lot of whey and mozzarella whey ends up being quite rich because some of that butter fat is lost into it. But additionally, they supplement it with some cream or some milk. And then that gives it more proteins to be able to coagulate when they go up to that temperature. But if you were going to do it at home and you don't mind just getting a couple tablespoons, maybe a quarter cup from a gallon's worth of whey, if you're lucky, um, you finish making your mozzarella, for example, and then you bring that whey up to almost a boil and all of the pro the proteins that are left from cream, but also just whey protein is drawn out because in order to have made cheese, you had to have had acid in there in some way. And we can talk about acid that you add and acid that you create, but then that acid works with that heat to draw the remaining proteins out, which includes um, the whey protein, skim that off. And there you have your traditional whey ricotta, a little tiny bit. Um, ah, no wonder. It's a fun experiment. I had, because true confession here, I I tried to do it because everyone says, oh, well, real ricotta is made from whey. And I'm like, all right, mm -hmm. well, fine. Because mm -hmm. I'm that kind of guy, right? So I had made a bunch of, I forget, it might have either been, you know, the so-called fake ricotta, which is really the really good stuff that we make at yes. home, or case or queso fresco. I can't remember which. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I had like a stock pot full of whey, and that's mm -hmm. three gallons. And it was a lot of whey. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm like, all right, well, let's just do this. And it was just, you're right. It was like a freaking half <laughs> cup. <laughs> yep. Especially if it was ricotta that you made, because ricotta has, the milk has to be heated up to a pretty high temperature to make even whole milk ricotta. You even deproteinize that way from a lot of the whey protein, um, the first round when you made ricotta. So if you went further and boiled the way, then you'd get even less. So, oh, it, wow. you know double, what I mean? Yeah. Double whammy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I'm glad you got half cup. <laughs> well, it was a, I mean, I have a big stock pot. Yeah. 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 But if you made queso fresco, then you would get that uh, type of thing, just like I was talking about with the mozzarella. It's, it's fun to do it, but yeah, once you do it, you're like, okay, that's great that that's the tradition, but I can see that that would work in a much larger scale um, at home. No shame and just using whole milk and it's delicious ricotta when you make it that way. Got it. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors and that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. 
And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a, a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade, and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all-wool body, has classic snap-flap pockets, and a full-width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at Filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. Let's move to... Um, you and I are going to use queso fresco because I live in California. You're from San yes. Diego, yeah. And it's it's just it's the lingua franca, so to speak, yeah. Uh, yeah. Of what what we're familiar with with a fresh, kitchen made cheese. Mm-hmm. There are there is a version of that pretty much everywhere. Everyone eats cheese. I mean, it's I and yes, you t- you're exactly. going to tell me because I only I know enough to be dangerous. But I'm thinking like quark is similar and mm-hmm. farmer cheese in England is similar mm-hmm. and there's probably one in everywhere else. But paneer but, is very similar. Paneer, yeah, that's another mm-hmm. good example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so l- walk someone listening to this through. Okay, we want to make a fresh, let's just call it queso fresco or farmer cheese mm-hmm. to and use that as a kind of a blanket term. So yeah. let's do that. And then also because I have to tell you that when I talk and maybe it's different in California maybe your listeners are different but when I talk about queso fresco in Portland which is not known for its huge Mexican population people's eyes glaze over a little bit and they're not that excited to learn how to make queso fresco so I just want to say to people that the same process we will discuss for queso fresco is 90% of the way to making mozzarella so Mm, (laughs) that appeals to people more (laughs) um and and a little kind of um flashback to something you said is when you made the sopa de queso and you had the pieces of queso fresco in the bowl and then you put the hot soup over it and it started to melt that's because you're starting to make mozzarella <laughs> who knew <laughs> or 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 let's just call it what it is queso oaxaca yes queso oaxaca exactly. and get all the italians super pissed off <laughs> That's right. Thank you for mentioning Oaxaca, <laughs> the Mexican string cheese. <laughs> okay, so you want to walk people through making your first cheese that will that exists all over the world. Yeah, because I think that's a good place for people to. St- I think that's a better place to start than even mozzarella because even yeah. though people love mozzarella, there's that pulling process and people get freaked out about burning yes. hands and stuff. Like yeah. That. Yeah, I just kind of want to give people a frame of reference to realize that this is the beginning to making pretty much any cheese, even cheddar, even brie, even blue. Okay. Yeah, making queso fresco is, and even feta, really is just making fresh cheese where you take it from, uh, where you take it to once the curd is done is what will create a lot of different cheeses. Although there are some differences like how big you cut the curd, how long you stir it for, how long you keep it at what temperature. 
then it can start getting into then that goes into Swiss, then that goes into this other cheese. Uh, that's how small the difference is in addition to what cultures you add, what molds you add. Uh, but the process really, this is making all cheese. Okay, you ready? Ready. Okay. Let's talk about the, the traditional way and that is to add cultures. That's how you make the acid. So first things first is you have your, I'm going to go by the gallon just because this is how I teach sure. it and it's accessible. So you have a gallon of, of whole milk, pour it into a pot. I do a direct heat method. Some people do a double boiler where they have um, the pot resting in a much bigger pot and slowly warm up the milk because you're only going to 90 degrees. Um, and so you you can do it in a sink full of hot water, for example. That was one of the ways that I was taught. But I just do direct heat because there's nothing wrong with it and it's not going to stick to the bottom of the pot or anything. So um, warm your milk or get it started anyway. Um, you have, in most cases now, what's convenient, although people are doing good work with cultures right now, we can discuss that too, is you get a package of freeze-dried thermophilic or mesophilic cultures what I do often at home, honestly, and how I cultured cheeses in my Instant Pot cheese making book is using buttermilk. That mm. is already rich with a lot of the cultures that help in cheese making. And so all you want to do is acidify this milk. And so we can do it with citric acid. We can do it with vinegar, with lemon juice. And right now we're doing it with uh, probiotic bacteria from buttermilk, we're going to say, because this is something people could go and do today. Okay. So someone goes to the supermarket, buys a gallon of whole milk and you buy, mm -hmm. uh, let's, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking you buy whole milk because life's too short to eat skim milk cheese. Absolutely. Yeah. And cheese <laughs> is fat and protein. So you're just going to get less cheese and it's going to be waxy if you use low fat milk. I'll tell you one, a couple of cheeses that are fun to make with low fat milk, because also sometimes it's nice if you have cream line milk to skim the cream, make butter from that. And now you have this low fat milk to deal with. So, but we'll put that aside. Okay. Uh, so yeah, and then buttermilk, the you get, get the mm. Bulgarian buttermilk, right? It's when I buy it, it is not called Bulgarian. I've never oh, seen really? Bulgarian buttermilk oh, in the store. The yeah. only buttermilk we have available to us uh, is full fat Bulgarian buttermilk or. <laughs> well, or now I feel ripped off. <laughs> totally. Well, you know, it's Oregon. It's not quite, you know, <laughs> and then the, then the low fat, there's a low fat version, which I never touch. Yep. Low fat cultured buttermilk is all I have seen, but I'm going to be on the lookout for this Bulgarian um, buttermilk. So yeah, you buy yourself a common, um, you know, uh, pint, half pint sure. of cultured buttermilk. And, you know, the reason it's in the store is because people still use it for, um, making fried chicken and biscuits and, and pancakes. So it is there, even though people may think, you know, it doesn't exist because <laughs> they never see it. Once you start looking as a cheesemaker, you'll find new dairy products. I, so get, I've never met anybody who didn't think buttermilk existed. Maybe I'm hanging oh out my with the gosh. wrong crowd. You know, maybe I'm hanging out with the wrong crowd that does, doesn't know the dairy section. <laughs> it sounds like that's like a, you know, who, you know, who would say that buttermilk doesn't exist? Someone huh. from San Diego. True. That's is true. it. San Diego does not seem to be a dairy rich society. Yeah. You know, on the Mexican, it's hard for me to say that because if you go to a Mexican grocery store, there's some excellent ones there. The, the dairy section, the cheese section is huge and varied. And even the Costco has incredible um, cheeses from Mexico. So 
um, maybe you're hanging out at the wrong stores. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't get a, I don't spend enough time in San Diego. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and if so I did, anyway, I'd be speaking Spanish. Right, right. So grab yourself a, a gallon of whole milk. Gotcha. Make sure it is not ultra pasteurized. I can't stress that enough. Any cheese that you try to make, especially that is going to require rennet, which we'll discuss next, is not going to work if you use ultra pasteurized milk. Um, they've denatured the calcium, the proteins, and this is just for a, a long shelf life. So skip past that. It will say it on there. It will often be the large organic brands, unfortunately. Um, and um, uh, which other brands? The half gallons. If you buy your milk in half gallons or quarts, I guess they're counting on that. Maybe those people don't buy milk as often. I'm not sure the reason why, but it's usually ultra pasteurized. So look my guess gallon. would be it's for people who just want milk for their coffee. Yeah. Yeah. It lasts a long, long time. And that's why it's because it's dead. <laughs> <laughs> we want music, we want the milk to be as alive as possible. So thankfully pasteurized milk will work for um, cheeses. So you have your gallon and then your, you're going to need just a quarter cup of that cultured buttermilk. For, you can also use yogurt. Um, it will work better for some cheeses than for others because it's just different types of bacteria. So buttermilk seems to be more consistent. And But for queso fresco, either one will work. But make sure, obviously, it's plain yogurt, it's live cultured, not pasteurized, no sweeteners, all that stuff. So you go back home, you are warming this milk, you stir the, um, the cultures into it before it gets anywhere past 90 degrees. You don't want to kill them. Um, uh, the next thing is you add your rennet. So rennet will go into acidified milk. And so dissolve your rennet. It can either come in liquid form animal rennet. Um, you'll use as small as a quarter teaspoon dissolved in, I don't know, just a couple of tablespoons of water. It's not an exact uh, amount, although I typically say quarter cup water to a quarter teaspoon um, rennet so that it's easy to remember. And you're just dissolving it so that it can spread throughout the entire gallon easily and not sort of clump up and get stuck in one area. Um, you add that at about 90 degrees. That with the warm milk with the acid will create a custard-like texture, like a flan. Mm. Um, or when you open a brand new container of yogurt or you've made yogurt and you see that it's just firmed up, it's definitely not um, liquidy at all anymore. Uh, and you can taste it. It tastes nice and mild and, and people around the world eat it just like that. That's a food. Um, <laughs> I love that. that is a food you can eat. That it. is it's a food poison. you can eat it. Yeah, there's, <laughs> and I've tried this. I don't know if you have a, a fig tree available, but if you, you know, figs. I'm when looking you, at a fig tree right ah, now. Oh my gosh! Well, you're gonna have to try this, Hank. It's super fun, although it is a little bit bitter tasting, but an acquired taste. Again, um, you take a little, you take a stick, a tiny branch of fig, and you'll see the dripping latex. Sap. You know, yeah, yeah the sap, and drop that into milk and it will coagulate and it will create a curd just like this. And do you know what else with the, there, uh, the other plant that I'm looking at right now, well, actually I'm not looking at it cause it's on the other side of my window, but I grow cardoons Ooh, and, okay. and the, the, the pretty blue center of a artichoke or a cardoon flower mm -hmm. will also 
coagulate milk. I learned that That's from the right. Portuguese. Yes, we have lots of Portuguese here in the Central Valley. Ah, yeah, that is a traditional, well-known vegetarian rennet. It's a Which, pretty good idea to strain it out, though. Otherwise, you have little weird things in your mouth. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and then there's some Mexican berries that I haven't been able to find called trompillo. Have you run into these? Oh, I think they're from like Michoacan, okay. if, I, if I remember right. They're not so, They're not from the north of Mexico. Mm, yeah, so in my travels, I'll, I'll try to find them to, to see if I can coagulate some milk. But anyway, that's supposed to be a, a good rennet replacement. So, okay, there we have our pot of, you know, the curd and it, it, it will jiggle. You should be able to, like, if you take a spoon and kind of pull the curd away from the edge, it should pull away as if you were, you know, jiggling a flan kind of thing. And so then now you have to help this giant mass release the liquid because, you know, if you taste it, you'll see it is not cheese. It is a very, very delicate yogurt, way more delicate than flan. So all of that liquid needs to come out for us to be able to go on and press the curd, salt the curd, dry it, stretch it, whatever we're going to do with it. Um, and so the most popular way to do this is to take a long knife and create a grid of cuts across one way and across the other way, like tic-tac-toe. So you do that, make sure your knife can reach all the way to the bottom, about one inch apart, make cuts and, and slice it. So now we have a whole pot's worth of towers, right? Mm -hmm. So you can create an invention and kind of recreate what they use in factories um, to cut across, or you can now, in order to cut those towers down into smaller, bite sizes you go into the same cuts but you go in at an angle and try to cut all the way down to the pot and don't stress out about it being perfect it's not going to be it's impossible and do that in both directions again so that now hopefully you have a whole pot of irregular about one inch size cubes and in the next step we will make sure that the bottom pieces that you miss or if some are just too big will cut up so now you you're just doing this still at that um, 90 degree temperature. But now, in addition to creating a lot more surface area, we are going to add heat. And that is going to help more and more of that whey release from that curd. And so you pump up the heat a little bit more. And now with a large ladle, skimmer, spoon, really anything, very slowly, you start moving the curd pieces around. And I it is not stirring. You will absolutely destroy all of that work you've just gone through. Well, it's not that much work, but all the work that mm. the enzymes went through <laughs> to create that curd and basically dissolve all of your curd and kind of turn it into ricotta that's really, really hard to drain. So you just stir them. What you're doing is assisting them in moving around in that heat and releasing liquid. So you go down to the bottom and you bring up a scoop. If they're large pieces, take your knife and just kind of cut them back into that one inch piece. And you're just kind of preventing it from matting and continuing to keep surface area equal as, as well as you can. Do that until you get up to 105, 110. I like to work in ranges so people don't stress out. Right. Um, God, and, I could do this in my backyard in summertime. Oh, easily. Yeah. <laughs> I've made cheese in farmer's markets and uh, uh, No heat rooms. necessary because it's 105 <laughs> out. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> yeah, 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 that too. Um, so you're just cooking this down. And I like to, at this point, tell people to, um, before they stir, pick up a piece and feel how jiggly it is. It, if you split your fingers just a little bit, it should run between your fingers. That's how fragile this curd is at this point. You're going to stir and cook it and hold it at that 105 to 110 degree temperature until you can pick up a piece and it doesn't go through your fingers. And when you press it with your thumb, it indents ever so slightly. So uh. from yogurt texture to about scrambled egg texture is what you're looking for. Ah, great way to put it. Yeah, that, that's a good visual that works um, for me, for sure. I, so, like to, uh, I like to say that your sauce should be the consistency of melted ice cream. That's, that's the one mm, I use a lot. That's a good one. Yes. <laughs> um, like ricotta for me is often like, I don't know, sometimes kind of like a, um, a thick ice cream it can be. Yeah, like if you make a scoop, it would actually make that beautiful ice cream scoop shape. But yeah. anyway. Um, so with this cheese, though, now we have our excellent um, egg, uh, scrambled egg textured um, curd. And you want to make sure that about 90% of all of this curd is like that. You're not going to go through and squeeze everything um, bit by bit, but you can tell visually the, the square shapes and slices that you made will be rounded. Everything will start looking more like globs of cottage cheese floating in this yellowish liquid, which is the way. Um, instead of, you know, the very different yogurt jiggly stuff that you had before. Um, when about 90% looks ready, then we have to separate them. We have to separate the curds and weigh even further. You can do this in a couple of ways. If you have a really huge skimmer or slotted spoon, you can scoop it all out and put it into a cheesecloth lined colander. And I like to do this with a bowl underneath because I will always use the whey. And so you want to catch that whey in a clean manner. Um, and so just put a gigantic bowl under your, your colander and scoop your curd out. The other way that I do is just pour it all out and, and do that obviously like in the sink still with your bowl underneath. So you catch your whey, but the sink is just to catch the bigger splashes that are going to happen when you pour it out. Gotcha. So now, yeah, now you've caught the curd and you've caught the whey, put the whey aside and um, it's time to decide how you want to flavor this cheese, right? So it's not just salt, but you can add spices, you can add roasted garlic, you can add fresh herbs from your garden. If you're Hank, something you foraged, <laughs> <laughs> whatever you gathered, uh, wild something and mix it through. So first, let's talk about the salt. Salt is a big part of cheese making, but when you're making fresh cheeses, the main thing it is doing is flavoring and it is removing still some liquid, right? Salt always um, removes moisture. So you add it in for this gallon size batch and for let's say a queso fresco type of cheese or a snacking cheese, um, not necessarily like, you know, ricotta, you would leave pretty plain paneer. You right. would leave pretty plain cause you're going to cook with them, but say that you're going to put this in sandwiches or quesadillas, or, you know, just have a snacks with delicious fruit. Um, two teaspoons of salt are a good starting point. And the great thing when you think about salt and in these fresh cheeses is that if you're watching your sodium for whatever reason, um, it is not there to keep the cheese safe to preserve it, to age it or anything like that. So you can go up and down based on your preferences, ah, whatever okay. those may be. Yeah. Here's and a side note. For safety. 
Hmm. Here's a side note. Have you ever been to Mexico City? I have not. No, I have avoided it. You can <laughs> you can order a quesadilla there with no queso. Oh, what? Like, like it's yeah, just this is a dia. It's a dia, yeah. <laughs> so it's so this is a long running feud between northern Mexicans and, and central Mexicans. Is that in in central Mexico you can order a quesadilla that has no queso in it, and they're like. You have to ask for cheese in your quesadilla, which to anyone what? from about Durango North is like, no mames way. <laughs> yes, I so, say no mames. Yet so I actually have a t-shirt. This is Las Quesadillas Llevan Queso, which I wear whenever oh, I'm in, in, Oh, in, uh, I need that shirt. <laughs> Are you I kidding wear it me? I would be so bummed if I, what is inside then? Is the, it just every, the patty like, of masa? No, no. It's like, uh, it's, be, it's really like almost an empanada. It's okay. a, a big giant corn tortilla folded over with with usually like guiso in it, and okay, and you have huh. to ask for cheese to to go with it. Just it's Why it's really weird. I call it a quesadilla though. That's I don't I don't know. It just <laughs> it's a Catholic mystery. That's a disturbing aside, Hank. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? Las quesadillas llevan queso. So we have our we have our queso fresco with two teaspoons of salt in it, and yeah. now we got to press your- it, don't we? Yes. Well, it needs to. So you need to. I'm I'm speaking about this all like as if we have luxurious amounts of time, but you're actually having to to move swiftly between the draining and the salting and whatever spices you decide to put in there. Some great things, obviously, if you're going to move on to Mexican food is to add diced roasted peppers, even pickled jalapenos diced are, is ama- are amazing in there. Some fresh cilantro is really um, awesome. And fresh jalapenos is really awesome. There's a Mexican cheesemaker here in Portland that makes cheese called Botanero. Mm-hmm. And they do fresh jalapeno slices and cilantro. And you would not believe it sounds so simple, but it's so good. So I, would, uh, I recommend. Chutapines would be my thing. Oh, are those a certain type of pepper? Yeah, those are the tiny little red orbs of death that you may have seen. Mm, in, in Chili piquín, maybe. Uh, oh, no. What do you call much- it? So chili piquín and chiltepín are both wild mm. chilies, and it, it depends on where you are. But in some places, chili piquín is shaped like a bullet, and chiltepín yeah. is circular. But in uh, León, chili piquín is circular. So it's yes, yeah, you, I've seen you, circular you got, ones. You got it. <laughs> yeah, put those in there. Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, but we're working sort of quickly because, as you said, we're going to press it, and it the curd actually still needs to have some warmth in it in order to to have a really nice uniform shape and mm. crumb to it. Otherwise it will still be fine, but what will happen is you, it'll be lumpy on the outside. And when you cut it, it'll have little air pockets around because it didn't have that warmth to help it fuse together. So, um, it, you know, work quickly to put your salt in there and put whatever else flavors you're going to put in there. And then I really just with my hand or a spoon will pack it into a form. So now let's talk about forms. Since mm-hmm. we've released so much whey uh, in the draining process through the colander, it's not imperative at this level of cheese making that you have an actual cheese form with holes that release more whey. So don't worry about that too much. What it does do is give you a beautiful imprint on the outside that kind of looks like a traditional basket. Um, so if you have it, there's no harm in using it as long as you don't leave it in there too long because it does have then the curd exposed to some air and it can kind of get waxy and yellow. So just, you know, leave it in there just long enough to shape and then pop it out. Um, But other things that you can use that you have at home are just ramekins or cupcake tins 
just know that whatever bowl or receptacle you pack it into, it's the cheese is then going to have that shape. So if you mm. didn't want a rectangular cheese, then don't put it in a rectangle. <laughs> um, I met a lady have, who used tuna cans. Oh, there you go. Tuna cans. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I've never tried that one, but yeah. That's Cleaned, of course. Yes, yes. Yeah. A cheesemaker, one of the cheesemakers I learned um, from, they were very few around back in 2007 when I was learning, but there was this guy, I don't think his website even exists anymore. And man, I'm, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he used coffee cans because he, he made large batches of goat cheese hmm. that just would use his old coffee cans. And I guess maybe just only fill them part of the way. Um, and so you can make holes in an old yogurt container or whatever kind of you know, plastic you have around. I just wouldn't use that too many times. Um, and you pack it into whatever, let's say ramekin, because people have those accessible, but you know, it should be a good size unless you're make you're looking to make a lot of small cheeses, which is fun too, because then you can like say rub the outside of them with different things like smoked paprika on one, um, black pepper, you know, on the other, whatever. Uh, and then it can kind of look like a fun cheese platter with lots of different cheeses, although, you know, it's really the same process and <laughs> you just finished it. You know, it's fun. It's fun to do that. And some and you can also go sweet with it. So some orange rind, a little zest and some honey and have a lot of fun with that one process. So really now you've got it packed in your form and really just leave it there. 15, 20 minutes if the, the the curd has properly drained. If you're seeing a lot of moisture, then let it drain in the, the cloth longer. Um, you shouldn't. With this process, you should not see a lot of moisture. If it looks like ricotta and it's not that ice cream, thick, you know, cold, cold ice cream scoop texture, something went a little bit wrong. Maybe your rennet's old. Maybe your milk is ultra pasteurized. But if that were true, you wouldn't have been able to get that custard earlier. You wouldn't have been able to cut it. But what can happen is your thermometer could be off and maybe you didn't get it to the right temperature or you didn't cook the curd enough as you were stirring. And so you didn't release enough whey and it is that ricotta texture. So mm. things can still go wrong along the way here. And that's why I really like to teach people to look for those visual cues and to feel you know, like I said, the, the curd should go from the yogurt texture to that pressable scramble egg texture. If you're following those things along the way and you know that your thermometer is reliable, all those little things, you should have this really nice scoopable curd at the end. In which case, if you just let it cool at room temperature, it will keep its shape. And then, of course, if you put it in the fridge, then to have leftovers on the following days, it will really firm up. And it will be nice and sliceable and you'll be able to cut it into cubes and fry it like you do paneer. We can talk a little bit more about frying panela. cheeses. Panela. Panela mm -hmm. is really the cheese I grew up with, which a lot of people don't know. But if you're in That's Southern like California, That's like Nuevo León you know. specialty. Is it? I never knew mm -hmm. where it came from. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hunt Gather Talk is brought to you in part by eFish. Efish delivers fresh, in-season, wild, American-caught, day-boat seafood right to your doorstep. This means that in most cases, your order is still swimming when you place it. The fish goes straight from the dock to you overnight. But most importantly, with eFish, you can always be sure that they put harvesters in our oceans first with every purchase. What does that mean? Small boat operators, hook-and-line-caught finfish, and their products are never treated with chemicals. 
truly handled with care from the minute it's hooked until it arrives on your doorstep. And as a 1% for the planet company, they work to ensure that our oceans will continue to thrive for generations to come. I have received eFish shipments myself, and I can tell you that they always arrive in top-notch condition, ice cold, even from all the way across the country. So if you want access to Harvester Direct in-season seafood that is always fresh and never frozen, check out eFish.com. That is e-fish.com. You get $15 off your first order with my code HuntGatherTalk. That is HuntGatherTalk, all one word. Again, you'll find all of this at e-fish.com. So, okay, so... I've I've followed you so far, and the way I have made it is a slightly different. And you tell okay. me if I'm screwing things tell up. Me. So I'm doing everything you've talked about, except when I throw the curds into the cheesecloth lined colander, I'll let them drain naturally for a little while, and then I will mm-hmm. ball it up and and squeeze it to get more uh-huh. way out. Okay. And then I will I will jam it into I have a plastic <laughs> cheese full cheese form, and uh, uh-huh. I'll I'll jam it into a plastic cheese form and really pack the hell out of it. Uh-huh. I mean, this is after the salt. Um, yeah. And then put it in the fridge and call it a day. No, that's good. It I makes think a that's real a, nice firm cheese. Yes. And that's what I was going to say is that you, all the pressing and squeezing gets it to be a little bit more paneer type. Gotcha. Um, and so, yeah. And I think what I'm shooting for is just a bit uh, more delicate panela type. Okay. Um, yeah. And so really it is just a variation on the same instructions and uh, those small differences and processes are just going to give you different results in that small way. And it really is a matter of preference. So if people were to come to me and say, Oh, well, I don't know why my queso fresco is so firm. I'll ask those details. And then I say, okay, well, try not squeezing it. You might be actually losing a little bit of butter fat by forcing the curd to release even more liquid through the cloth in that more forceful way. Um, and then try not pressing it because then obviously you haven't compacted the curd as much. And so it'll have a little bit more of a fluffy result. But and then I say in the other direction, if you want it to be really great for frying and to slice into cubes that you can float in your curries or whatever, then do press it, do squeeze it. You see what I mean? So it's not a, a wrong thing. It's just the, your preference. It's what you're shooting for. I do love the fact that we're dealing with you know, the coagulant milk and you know salt and mm-hmm. minor changes of technique will give you noticeable results to, yep. that are different yes exactly yeah so you want to take us one step farther than that into the almighty queso oaxaca or mozzarella or whatever you call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah if if you're interested sure i mean we've gotten this part this far and so I'm going to have to have you back. And I, uh, and I think we should just talk about Mexican cheeses the next time, but, uh, (laughs) because I mean, I, I am, I have so many questions and I just want to completely nerd out on Mexican cheeses, but, um, you know, and I would love that a little bit more ecumenical on this particular episode. Yeah. Well, I would love a Mexican cheeses one because then it would give me the goal to once and for all make cotija because it's always one that I'm just like, Oh, I love it so much, but it's just like not, an everyday cheese enough for me to go through the trouble. You know, if I'm going to make a cheese, I'm going to make something that I know I'm going to eat that whole week. Like I just really? made a batch of mozzarella. Yeah. I'm just a very practical person. See, I take the opposite <laughs> tack. Like cotijas, you know, those salted ricotta salada, cotija, very oh, similar. Um, I do love it. Is I love it, it so much. You, I make it because I don't have to eat it in a week. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. because if yeah, my, yeah, yeah. my tastes are so ecumenical that like I maybe don't want to eat cheese for three days. I, mm. I'll make this little wheel and then mm-hmm. just break it off and throw it in a taco. I go through moods, you know, and the other thing to remember is it probably freezes really well. I freeze feta and then can have feta, you know, whenever I feel like it by just thawing it out. It does get a little bit more crumbly, but whatever. Why would you ever need to freeze feta? Like you tell me, like, I, I can't even imagine feta ever going bad if it's in the brine. Well, because remember the one that I make that's done in seven oh, days you don't is make not the one in, the brine. in brine. Okay. Right. And well, I could what if you make? Yeah, there you go. What if you made it and put it in the brine? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, all these preferences that for, because of your lifestyle or whatever, you will lean towards cheeses that you want to make all the time that are really fast to make because you don't even have to reference a recipe uh, and ones that for whatever reason you haven't moved on to. Honestly, patience is one of my things. I mean, my first book is called One Hour Cheese. So. <laughs> That's, that's pretty cool. So let's do mozzarella because I know so many. Every, every, if you don't like mozzarella in some way, shape, or form, pretty sure I don't want to know you. Yeah, right. No, especially because it just leads to so many things. Burrata, mm-hmm. uh, Oaxaca, just mm-hmm. good old American string cheese or whoever, you know, Armenians invented string cheese. I'm not sure. <laughs> But um, so, okay, let's backtrack a little bit then because we don't want to shape this in a wheel. After we've, yeah, after we have separated our whey from the curd and the curd is now in the um, cloth and the, and the colander, Mm -hmm. you want to leave that there to mat together on its own without pressing other than taking your whole, whole palm and just sort of like, as if you were going to check if your, your pillow is soft, you're just going to pat it and kind of make it all fuse together. I'm doing this visually. <laughs> I hope you can feel it, Hank. I, hope I can. <laughs> I feel a disturbance in the force. Yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> you just pat it down as if you're testing a pillow and just flatten out that curd and that colander and let it sit like that for up to an hour. But it could just be 15 minutes. What you want is for it to become kind of a slab that mm. you can then cut into fourths. This is how I teach beginners. If you are an advanced person, you can stretch the entire batch all at once. But what ends up happening if you're not super good at it don't do it really often or have never done it before is your first ball will be like a rubber waxy almost inedible creation but as you go through the second third and fourth finally you've practiced enough on how to stretch the curd that they'll get better and better and better so you can call the first one a sacrifice don't worry about it it's probably only going to happen once or twice in your life because you're going to learn what the curd can take and what it can't because the more you stretch it and expose it to air and make it lose moisture, uh, the drier it's going to get. The worst thing that will probably happen is it go- it's going to be like the part skim, really hard mozzarella you can buy at the store that's really common and people buy to make their pizzas. People with, buy that? You know, they do, I know. Who buys that? <laughs> Bad people. Uh, it's not good. I know it's not good. Um, so, okay, cut it into four slabs. While remember that that was sitting there for 15 minutes to an hour while that's happening, you can take either the whey that you had left over. Let's say that you're working with a whey, but also everybody just know you can use hot water if you have some different use for the whey. Okay. You're still going to get whey at the end of this. So just keep that in mind. But let's put that whey back on the stove and get it up to 185, 190 
because we said there's still whey protein in there and this is how you make ricotta, you're going to want to skim that when it gets to the right temperature. Get your little bonus tablespoon of ricotta out of there. <laughs> chef treat. <laughs> totally. Very small chef treat. But you want to do that just so that there isn't all this little um, hard curd that's going to keep cooking in there. So remove, skim that little bit of ricotta and then pour some of that water into a heat resistant or some of that whey into a heat resistant bowl and take your first quarter of curd and cut it off into chunks, maybe about a big walnut size worth and put that in that hot way. Like your queso fresco in the hot queso soup or the caldo that you were talking about, mm -hmm. it's going to start softening, but we want it to fully melt. And but so leave it a minute to two you're probably going to have to be using a ladle unless you have crazy hands that can handle that intense heat. I doubt it because it's really hot. Um, scoop it out, feel it. It should start really indenting. You might see little melted strings. If you see melted strings, scoop that all out, put in a quarter teaspoon of salt and start folding it over itself, stretching it about six inches. Don't go crazy stretching it because remember that's what dries it out. People love the stretch, but the less you stretch and the less you have to fold in order to get a shiny curd that creates this beautiful ball, the better and more tender your mozzarella is going to be. And so that this, re, the, it, this happens quickly. So that's the reason for actually having a really fine flaky salt is because it has to melt and flavor the entire portion quickly. Okay, there are a couple of ways to salt this type of cheese. You can heavily salt that way that you just stretched it in, but it would have to be pretty heavily salted because it's not going to sit there that long. Or you can put the finished cheese into a cool um, salt water uh, brine after and it, it, it permeates the cheese by sitting there. Both of those methods use a lot of salt. And if you're not a regular cheesemaker and you're not going to use that way over and over again, then the direct salting works. And because we're using two teaspoons for an entire batch, um, that's why you're using half teaspoon for the quarter batch every time gotcha. you stretch it. That makes sense? Okay. Mm -hmm. So those Pretty little walnuts, are, those are bocconcini, aren't they? They are. If you Well, what I did though, Hank, is you gather all of the walnuts though together to make one big ball. Like poorly walnuts. Hey, oh, <laughs> that's, that's a Sopranos joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I recognize the name, but I, I didn't watch it enough to know the joke. But anyway, so you're gathering all of the, the crumbled up um, curd that you put in there, but you're crumbling it up so that again, you create more surface area and the hot way is able to melt all of it faster. And mm -hmm. so you gather it all and make that one ball. That's the ball. And so you sort of fold it over itself, let's say three or four times. And the benefit of that is not just to get it from that crumbly matte looking appearance um, to the shiny, gooey, more mozzarella recognizable melty look, um, but you're also making that salt go throughout it and you're creating the characteristic layers of a pasta filata cheese, which is what this is in Italian, um, mm. a, a pulled curd or spun curd, it's called. And that's because it transforms as you pull and stretch it. And so, you know, mozzarella, if you get a nice little fresh ball of mozzarella, if you slice it and look carefully and kind of run your finger up and down the slice, 
you'll see that it's layered and mm. that's what created the layer. Then to go on to Oaxaca or a string cheese, we, we take that step further. We stretch more. We allow the, the, we, I kind of wave it in the air. So it, the surface area dries a little bit and then you fold it over itself again, pull again, each time uh, waving it in the air a little bit, not like a, a wacko, like a pom-pom, but <laughs> like, I don't know, between your two hands in front of you, as if you're handing over a beach ball, and then you just go up and down a little bit. And that aerates the, the surface enough so that when you put it back together and stretch it again and again, it's not completely fusing. It is, but it's less than if it were the milky tender mozzarella. And what that does is when you pull at your string cheese or your Oaxaca, you have these excellent strings to pull at. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, that's the, the key of like good queso Oaxaca uh, mm -hmm. is that the big long strings. Mm -hmm. um, how does the fat content affect the mozzarella? Because you, you know, the most yeah. famous mozzarella is made with, with uh, water buffalo milk, which is that's higher right. in fat. Yeah, it affects it. But, you know, an interesting experiment I, I did in my first book is I wanted to recreate that type of mozzarella. And so I, I supplemented the milk with cream. Mm. And what I found is that so much of it was just coming out in the way anyway. And that also happens if I use um, unhomogenized milk with the cream line and the cream resting on the top, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up coming out so much so that dairies created something called whey butter. But really, it is when they've made mozzarella and there's so much cream left over, they let it settle on the top of the whey, they skim it, and then they make butter out of that. Um and so I would just use whole milk, stick to that. Um, homogenized or unhomogenized, it's fine. It, the unhomogenized milk will just lose some of the cream. Unfortunately, that's a waste. Um, but, you know, you can also skim it before or after and use it. But the way that I have seen and have been able to manipulate the, way, the fat in a, in a more accessible and useful manner is... If I want to make butter, I'll get cream line milk. I'll skim that cream and make butter with that or use it in my coffee, whatever delicious mascarpone, whatever you want to make with it. Um, and now you have low fat milk, which isn't great for mozzarella, the tender ball, um, mm -hmm. but it makes excellent Oaxaca and string cheese. And that's because remember when I was aerating it and kind of stretching it more than I stretch mozzarella. Well, those things aren't good for tender mozzarella result, but those things are uh. good for a drier string cheese. So again, it's kind of like we were talking about our two different queso fresco processes. These things aren't mistakes. I always tell people that cheese probably exists somewhere in the world. Someone made it just like you. <laughs> uh, it just has a different name maybe that what you were going for. Um, but just those little differences like fat will give you a different result. Um that's kind of amazing. I, I, we could talk about this for like two, three hours, but we'd need beer and cheese. Uh, <laughs> yes, for sure. So let me, let me leave you at this one with the promise that we're going to nerd out on Mexican cheeses later. Okay. So before I let you go, you have, you said four books and I, and mm -hmm. I know you're, you're on, you're on the gram and People can find you uh, on the internet and you do workshops uh -huh. in, I, 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 I suspect you're probably going to do workshops in more than just Portland this year. Yes, finally. I hope so. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's been a long time. I only just started in Portland even. Okay, so run us down. If somebody wants to find you on the series of tubes we call the internet, mm-hmm, how do they do mm-hmm. it? So first and foremost, my website, urbancheesecraft.com. Instagram at Urban Cheesecraft. Those are really the two places where I'm most active. And what are your books? They are, the very first one is called One Hour Cheese. And then everybody cover your ears. The next one is called One Hour Dairy-Free Cheese. (laughs) We can talk about that another time. Or not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you might enjoy making a little paste out of wild pine nuts or something like that. So that's kind of... Between you and Pascal Baudar, you guys are are the the people who might get me to do something that yeah, I won't yeah. call it cheese. I'll call it a thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm with you other than, you know, people need to know what it is you're trying to make. And, and it was also really fun as a cheesemaker to sit there with real brie and try to taste it with my eyes closed and separate out the different layers of flavor and think, how the heck do I create that without dairy? Super fun. So it was a food scientist dream but i know it's not real cheese anyway the next one is instant pot cheese which launched in 2020 so it's apparently a secret book no one heard about it Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah i had a uh, i had a book come out in 2021 which was kind of similar yeah what i really loved about that book is that i got to go beyond one hour cheese because really one hour cheese i really the promise is real you are going to eat cheese in one hour you don't need to age it's going to be there ready for you to go but instant pot cheese is super cool because if you have an instant pot with a yogurt function it has three preset temperatures already built in that are ideal for cheese making so it's really fun to just press the button and it's doing its thing um and then the final one I made that cheese. Now I have a freezer full of whey. What am I going to do? I'm going to write a book on cooking with whey. So that's what I did. And that just came out, right? That just came out. Yeah. And it is primarily cooking with whey, but there are some garden applications and there's even a Cleopatra-like bath in there. Very luxurious. Fancy. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm I'm hoping at some point that you'll have a book, really complicated cheeses you can't make at home, so suck it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm about to take a really cool course with this guy. Have you heard of Milk Trekker? I uh, just I've heard of it. Yeah. OK, well, find his Instagram. It's fascinating. He got some sort of amazing grant and got to go and walk in villages with, um, you know, herds of goats and Eastern Europe and uh, just mountainous areas all around the world. And now he's coming back to teach what he learned. So I cannot wait to hear because honestly, Hank, I thought you and I would talk about the four stomachs of ruminant animals and things like that, but another time. <laughs> another time. I just, I, I, the goal of this season and of every season really is to give people, uh, you know, A, to be not boring and B, to give people some inspiration to actually do stuff. Yeah. You know, yes, I mean, that, as much as I like, my mission. Mm-hmm. as much as I like Venezuelan beaver cheese, um, I, uh, <laughs> if you get that reference, you get major extra points. That's, oh man. Yeah. No, I'm not the person to teach you that. <laughs> so that, that reference is from the cheese shop skit of Monty Python, which if, oh, wow. if you haven't seen the cheese shop, uh, episode of Monty oh. Python, I'll link to it in the show notes. Okay. You'll, do you're, you're welcome. You're going to, it's, you'll oh, like awesome. it. <laughs> 
I love that. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely a gas. Uh, and I'm definitely going to have you back on where we can nerd out on, on Mexican cheeses. And because almost all of them are made in pretty simple conditions. Yeah. Yes. That's what I love about them. And, and it really, that connects you to so many cultures around the world that, you know, remember this is a survival food. And like you said, we've been eating it for thousands of years. It wasn't made by bleaching your kitchen and, you know, all the craziness that goes on with it. Now you can just whip it up. Yep. Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> I will talk to you soon. And uh, I, I will definitely head up to the PDX um, at some point this year and I will look you up when I'm there. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks, Hank. Well, that's our show this week. Thank you for spending part of your day with us. I am your host, Hank Shaw. I uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. This is uh, this is a really, really great show to inspire me and hopefully you to actually go out there and make some cheese because no one breaks it down like Claudia Lucero does. If you want to follow me on social media, uh, you can find me on Instagram. I am at HuntGatherCook. You can find me on Facebook at HuntGatherCook as well. It's a group that you have to join. Just say you listen to the podcast and I will let you in. And as usual, the core of what I do is my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. And that also can be found at HuntGatherCook.com. Take it easy. Have a fantastic week. And I will talk to you soon.